This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. As gardeners who harvest food and flowers, as nature lovers who gently forage fallen moss, lichen, stones, feathers, or cooks who prepare our fruits, vegetables, and foraged edibles, we all experience that moment, perhaps daily, of saying, what will I put that in? What vase, large or small? What dinner plate? What cake plate? What bowl? Thirty years ago, Francis Palmer answered this question in its various forms with this answer. I will set my table with items I have hand-formed, from an idea in my imagination, from the energy of my hands, from the earth beneath my feet. Almost ever since, her hand-thrown, hand-built terracotta, porcelain, and earthenware creations have been sought after by gardeners, cooks, floral, and tablescape artists from around the world. This week, I'm joined by Frances Palmer to hear more about the symbiotic relationship between her garden and her art. She is joining us via Skype from her studio in Weston, Connecticut. Welcome, Frances. Thank you. Let's get started with the earliest influences in your life that led to a love of gardening and natural history and the land, including its plants and its soils around you. Did that start early? Did it come later? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I grew up in Morristown, New Jersey, which at that time was pretty much farm country. It was, it is a revolutionary war town. So it was a very historic area, very much. I live right down the street from George Washington's headquarters, and it was a big farm community, and my mother was a big flower and vegetable person, so she would always grow tomatoes and lots of peonies and different zinnias, rhubarb, all sorts of things, but we also had these great farm stands that I didn't. it didn't even occur to me that of course, now they're very much in vogue, but at the time we would go and get great Jersey corn and peaches and tomatoes and she would jar and can things. And then also down the road from us was a great dairy. So we got all our milk delivered. And mm. so I always was very much involved in in plants and flowers. And my mom was a great cook and she taught me how to cook at a very early age. So all of these things were very much part of my upbringing. And she would always set a table. She would always be the one to have the dinner parties. And it was it's just something that I, I didn't even realize how much it was a part of me until I was a little bit older and living in Connecticut and starting a family and finally having a place of my own to garden. And your formal education took you on something of a tangential journey. Describe your formal education and the pathways it followed. Well, from an from an early age, I always made art. And when I was in high school, I did a lot of printmaking and lino cuts. And I had planned to go to art school. I had gotten into a few of them, especially the Carnegie Mellon, which had a very great printmaking department. Mm-hmm. But through a circuitous route, I ended up getting a degree in art history. I did an undergraduate at Barnard and a graduate degree at Columbia because I felt that the art was something that I would always make myself. And 
but the the academics, the training, the reading, the being able to put it all together was something that really appealed to me. So I decided rather than go to a, a, a more formal art school that I would go and do the art history and then continue to do the artwork myself. Describe the beginning of your ceramic career. I was living in the city with my husband and the, our daughter is born at Christmas time. And he makes a decision to move out to Connecticut full time in the dead of winter. And I had never seen a baby in my life. And I didn't know anybody out in Connecticut. And he would drive into the city every day. And nobody really quite prepared me for motherhood and what it entailed. And I was alone with this baby and feeling really quite overwhelmed. And when he saw me, and of course, nobody at that point in time talked about postpartum or any of those other things that are quite normal when one has a new baby. And my husband said to me, well, you're out here now and you, you're not working full time. Why don't you think of something you've always wanted to try doing that you've never had an opportunity to do? And for some reason, because of my love of cooking, because of my love of entertaining, I just thought, wouldn't it be great to make all the pieces for the table? I had been studying the the ceramics of the Omega workshop, which was part of the um, Bloomsbury group around 1916, where at this farmhouse in East Sussex, this group of artists made everything in the house. They did the paintings, they did the pottery, and this was very inspiring to me, and I decided I was going to start making my own work. Describe for listeners who might not be familiar with this English movement at that time, what some of what they were reacting to and and what characterized some of their work. Well, I very much admire the work of Vanessa Bell, who was Virginia Woolf's sister. And they lived with their brothers in the Bloomsbury section of London. And they were sort of without parents or social, social confines. And at the time, Vanessa Bell was in love with Duncan Grant, and they were trying to find a way for him to escape being drafted for World War One. So they said that they would go out to this farmhouse and he would do farming and that would be his way of contributing. So they went out there, but they were part of a whole group of artists. And uh, I believe it's actually Roger Fry who started the Omega Workshop, which was a way for different artists and their crafts to all come together to sell their work. And in this house, which of course is a museum now, and you can you can go and visit it. They did. They painted all the walls and they put the paintings on the painted walls. And as I said, they made the pottery and they did the fabrics. I mean, everything about this house was considered and made. And all the, these, this group of artists all congregated at this farmhouse. Mm-hmm. And I just found the whole, the whole thing so in, incredibly intriguing. And I just responded to it so much that I felt that I wanted to do what I could in my own environment to take what I felt was so beautiful from that whole aesthetic. And there was this lovely integration and integrity at the very heart of the meaning of that word in the the life they were trying to to build in which everything contributed to everything else or was part. Like it was so interconnected, their, their lives, their work, their art, their food. And I... I, I get such a response when when you you talk about it and when I see pictures of your garden and your tables and then the beauty of your ceramics. For you at your at your own home and as you sort of embarked on this journey, 
were you, you clearly were already a cook. Were you already uh, an avid gardener before you started the ceramic journey or did that come later? Well, I, I definitely feel that the ceramics started about the same time because as I said, growing up with all this around me, but then I went to school in New York City, I really didn't have any opportunity to have a garden. So I felt that my gardening ideas were rather dormant. But the minute I had the opportunity, I just started and and started to learn what I, I really wanted to do and how I thought about it. But the ceramics definitely progressed at a faster pace on the garden because the first 10 years that we lived in Connecticut and Weston, we lived in this 1940s glass house that was set into the hillside. So it was primarily a rock garden. And then by the time we had three children and we'd basically outgrown the house, we moved to the other side of town and found an old 1850s colonial. The beds were already existing for a flower garden. And that is when I really was able to focus on growing flowers for the pot specifically. Yeah. So that was a, that was a good 22 years ago. There is this clear line of handcrafting functional art for the table in general, but throughout your career, there has been this emphasis in your work on crafting vessels that you can display or hold flowers or fruit. When did this focus become clear to you, this relationship between creating these vessels and displaying the the harvest from your garden? I think it really began as soon as I started making work. I, I always, and I always photographed every piece that I made, even from the very beginning, I always photographed it. So I was always very conscious of not just taking a photo of the pot, but just how to make it tell a story, especially since when I first started making work, I was very much interested in, in selling the work. I always, you know, I didn't start it as a hobby. I really started it as, as my vocation. And one of the best ways to give a customer a sense of scale and how it's used is if I showed it with something in it. And I think that's one of the great inspirations for me growing the flowers is because if you have a bud vase or if you have a large vase and you're taking a photograph it to, to show it to somebody by virtue of the flowers that you put in it, you, you not only give the person an idea of the size of it, but how they might conceive of displaying it themselves. Because lots of times people feel a bit overwhelmed, like, oh my gosh, I have this, this vase now. Now what do I do with it? Mm-hmm. And so I've always been very much about this is what you can do with it and you can do many things. So I'll take a shape and use the same shape throughout the season. So I can show it with peonies or I can show it with dahlias or I can show it with, you know, branches. And Francis, I will tell you that my response to your photographs is that you are having almost as much fun putting those together and getting the light in your studio just the right way and getting the the kind of sweep of the flowers or the fruit or the branches just so um, they are as beautiful as the flowers on their own or the vessels on their own. Did you study photography or is this just sort of come along for you? I did not study photography. I mean, like the ceramics, 
I do it every day. And as a result of doing it every day, I'm constantly exploring. And I think you're correct. I love, I love to make photographs and I love to get up every day, especially when there are flowers in the garden and just look at what's growing and go, hmm, that's, this is what I want to use today. This, these are the colors I want to do. I would say, yes, the flowers, the photography and the ceramics are completely interwoven. And so if, if I'm posting a photo on my Instagram account, I've taken of that one photo that I've posted, I've probably taken, you know, 20 or 30 yeah. different exposures, different times of day. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. This week, I'm speaking with Frances Palmer, renowned potter ceramicist. For 30 years, she has been creatively turning clay into the most beautiful flower vases, garden pots, and more. Sometimes it's hard to say if her extensive flower and fruit garden inspires her ceramic artistry or her ceramics inspire her garden. They both show one another off perfectly. We'll be back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break with gardener and potter Frances Palmer, who's joining us via Skype from her studio in Weston, Connecticut. A gardener and a cook as long as she has been a potter, all three of her passions are literally born from the ground up. Welcome back. And if you want a hit of happiness, definitely get on Facebook or go online or go to Instagram and follow Frances Palmer Pottery because her photographs make me happy every day. They are like little Dutch still lives and, oh, yeah, they just, mm, I love them. So coming to other things I love, describe your current garden for listeners and its general feel and its size. When we moved in almost 23 years ago, it was sort of like a wedged garden. But after the first year, the wedge wasn't really working for me. Plus, it wasn't fenced in. So after that first year, my husband and I put up a fence, which pretty much is the same as it is today. And it's about a 50-foot diameter circle. But in the circle are 16 square foot square beds, four square beds with some beds on the edge. Everything in that garden needs to function as a cut flower. And I've gone through many years of trial and error, but ultimately what I have to decide is, is this something that I can cut and put in a vase? And if it doesn't fit that criteria, then I take it out. But then I get a little enthusiastic and always over order. And I was saying to my (laughs) husband one year, I wish wish that I had more garden space. I guess I'll have to make another fenced in garden. But then he pointed out to me when we moved into the house, there was an old fallen down tennis court that had been originally built in the 1930s. Truthfully, at the end of the day, none of us played tennis. And he said, why don't you use the tennis court as a garden? He didn't realize kind of what he had started. I think I'm up to 26 raised beds now. Oh my gosh. Last year I put in drip irrigation. And of course the court gets beautiful sun. So the flowers up there just soared last year. And so there's the round garden the tennis court, and then I've started an orchard of fruit trees, medlars and apples and peaches, pears, quince, persimmon, pawpaw, plum. Is your goal to have it that you never buy flowers or fruit outside of what you produce? I usually have so many flowers that I don't need to buy them, but of course this time of year, I want it to be very zen and just do like branches and leaves and things like that because it is February. But then 
it was starting to look a little dull. So I had to break down and go to the wholesale flower market and buy flowers. And that makes winter a lot cheerier. But the minute I can stop buying flowers and I can use my own, I love to do that. You have a couple of particular favorites. I believe you love dahlias. Yes, I love dahlias. So when I started this garden 22 years ago, when we moved here, uh, dahlias were not considered very chic. And I feel like I went on a complete dahlia campaign. My husband comes from San Francisco, and of course they have the beautiful dahlia garden Mm. uh, in the park there. So when I would always go and stare at them. And there used to be a lot of very small, obscure dahlia suppliers. So I kind of started that way. And I just kind of went on a relentless Dahlia campaign. And Martha Stewart, who's always been so incredibly supportive of me and my work, she and I hit it off on the Dahlia thing, and she also started growing them. And there's a whole ethos that has changed since I began, Mm -hmm. but I'm still constantly refining. I choose my tubers by the colors. I choose them by the size. Every year, I order way too many and plant way too many, but I can't help myself. How many different kinds do you currently grow, Frances? Three or four hundred, maybe five hundred. Uh, <laughs> I've kind of lost count. I just <laughs> I don't worry about it. I just do it. So um, I'm I'm thinking of the the dahlias and and their particular form and its kind of fractal beauty. There's this great geometry and patterning to to a dahlia, whether it's a very formal one or a little bit more of a blousy one. And they've got wonderful colors, like some very subtle and very nuanced, some iridescent. When you're thinking about vases or pots that you would put a dahlia in, does the flow of inspiration kind of go from the flower to the vessel or does it go from the vessel that you take into the garden and say, what is going to show this off to best effect? I think it really goes both ways. I mean, some some flowers like bearded iris that have a very stiff stem really require, you know, a tall, narrow vase. And the variety of the dahlias, you just have so many options. And not only do you have options of the shape and the size, but they also die so beautifully, kind of like a tulip or a peony where you, you get it when it's quite fresh and it has one look. And then as it ages, it just becomes even more exquisite. What I always want to do is just put one dahlia in a vase so that everybody can see, as you said, the geometry. But I I tend to get a bigger response when I do one of those big like bowls of things just kind of falling over. Hmm. So they give you unlimited opportunity to explore and just have fun. Yeah. So place and history seem to come up in in your work as themes. What do you see as the most important place influences in in your inspirations? Well, I love to travel and I love to go to museums when I go places, but I love so much to read books. So I don't have to physically travel to travel. I couldn't pinpoint one one period per se, but but for example, I was in Paris over New Year's and I went to the Picasso Museum and there was a Picasso Giacometti exhibition. Well, then you look at Giacometti and you think, oh, you know, Brancusi, but then you have to go all the way back to the Etruscans because mm-hmm. I'm looking at artists and artists are looking at other art. So there's this whole lineage. I spent a, a month in China and I did a residency there. So yes, I was studying Chinese porcelain, but 
I feel that it's just not completely defined to one particular period. I'm constantly trying to blend different periods and kind of think how I can take those ideas and interpret them. Does that make sense? Yes, definitely. When I was in China, a man came to the residency and he sort of explained how the whole cobalt painting worked in in Chinese history and that each dynasty had their own kind of cobalt chemistry because Mm -hmm. of how how cobalt traveled on the silk route. And that sort of idea, that sort of Mm. thing completely fascinates me. It's Mm. not just that, oh, here's a blue. No, each blue is different because it's tied in with history. And and I I love that. And I have heard or read your responses to the ideas of collaboration and collaborating with other artists and collaborating with florists. And, And you've done quite a lot of that very successfully in your career. But I have also read a quote by you that talks about the importance of coming home being on your own with your own creativity and the, the sort of raw material in your studio with the light working. You, you, you work with a couple of different materials, but they're all earth. They're earth. And so just like a garden, your, your, your ceramics are crafted from the ground just like our flowers are, just like our food is. I love that parallel. Describe the different materials that you use and, and what you might get out of each of them individually. To go back to the beginning of our conversation where I said that I originally wanted to be a printmaker, I think what appeals to me so much, like printmaking, like gardening, like ceramics, is that the artist has a will and a desire to make something. But at the the end of the day, the, the process takes over and and has the final say. So you, you plant flowers in a garden and you hope for the best. You hope you get rain. You hope you get sun. But every year it's a different story depending on what happened. And, and for me, the clay is very much the same, same way. I work in three different clays. I work in terracotta, which I use primarily to make vases and pots for the garden. I work in white earthenware, which is a low fire clay It's uh, that matures at about 1950 degrees it's a white earthenware and earthenware is a very cooperative happy clay and I don't know if I want to use the word happy but it's a very it likes to be pushed in many directions and then I also work in cone 10 high fire translucent porcelain which is very which is a much more austere clay in the sense that you have to you have to work on it and you have to trim it and you have to put pieces together at just the right moment. So each of these three clays have their own personalities and I value each one of the clays and oh you know I only I've come to know them so well that I know what each one is able to do and I try to do particular shapes for that clay and as a result I feel that gives me the range of work that I'm able to produce. Mm-hmm. One of the things that comes across in all of your materials is this sense of form and play and whimsy is the word you used. And you have an incredible amount of very specific, solid, sometimes iconic forms. And then they have, in many cases, have this playful sense of personality that is like a conversation between you and the material and you and your creativity. Is there a theme to the different forms? I can, you know, think of the ruffles and then the polka dots and then the beads. The ruffles, 
I actually was inspired to start doing those because I was in Venice maybe 20 years ago and there was an Anselm Kiefer exhibition and he had those huge metal books and the the leaves of the books, I mean, these books were like three by four feet and the edges of the books, of these metal books is kind of what inspired me to start folding the clay. I started putting the beading on the edges of the earthenware because earthenware is a little bit more porous and fragile than say the porcelain. So I put the beads on the edge of the pot to protect the edge from, from chipping. It actually made the pieces much sturdier, but then that became associated with my style. And many a time I would love to just keep everything kind of very minimalist and pure. And I do that to a certain extent. But then people will say to me, oh, could you put the pearls on? And you have a wonderful range of styles from your celadon work to your very classic terracotta pots. I'm loving looking at those. And then, of course, all these whimsical ones that that might be more associated with you. But range is certainly associated with your artistry. The pearls. Talk about the pearls, Francis. I I have loved researching your, your history and different interviews with you. And every photo I have ever seen, you have pearl earrings and a pearl necklace. Pearl was a name of, of one line of uh, China that you produced. And what is the symbolism of pearls for you? I just feel that when, you know, I put on a pearl necklace and I'm ready to go. And I just, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm just very attached to them. And I did, I had a line of tableware that was produced for me by the, it used to be the Buffalo Pottery up in Buffalo, New York. It, it was Niagara Ceramics. They sadly went out of business in 2013. Mm. I don't know. I love pearls. I've always responded to them. I have heard pearls symbolize the wisdom born of experience. And so for me, that really summarizes this idea of the wisdom of your pieces and the way they work with what they're doing um, and the fact that they had to be experienced to bring them into life with your imagination and your hands. And I you know. like that description. <laughs> I, I think that's lovely. Thank you. So finally, what do you love most about what you do? Well, I I love what I do. I mean, I love having the time to explore and every day is an exploration it's the taking the time to do the practice i try not to rush so basically i just feel very lucky that i i have the opportunity to set my own schedule and do what i love to do every day of my life thank you very much for speaking with us today it's been a pleasure francis thank you so much for asking it's it's been really a treat Frances Palmer is a potter who makes her home, her studio, and her garden in Weston, Connecticut. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. As always, thank you for listening. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust and is produced by Sarah Bohannon. For this week's audio archive or to subscribe to the podcast, please visit MyNSPR.org. For more information, including many photos of Francis's work, please visit JewelGarden.com. 
For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.